Welcome to Remarkable Retail Podcast, Season 4, Episode 8. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. Steve, we're back on the mic. We are back with a guest. We have a great guest, special guest uh, return, actually, to our show, Simeon Siegel from BMO, a.k.a. Bank of Montreal. And it's a fantastic uh, discussion because we deep dive into a report that was actually issued in the fall of last year, late fall. DTCs, not all it's cracked up to be. So it's a really super interesting report and and, uh, really looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, I really, uh, you know, we when we talk about different themes for for episodes, one of the things that started to emerge for me is really this this kind of great debate between the value of DTC versus wholesale. And there's been so much discussion, and, and this is something we unpack with Simeon, and, and he gets into in his report about kind of this notion that direct to consumer has to always be better than wholesale, and that wholesale in general is is really struggling and you know it turns out like many things there's a little bit more uh more nuance to that than just kind of the uh the clickbait headlines for now oh i wanted to remind everyone uh, that of our fun segment the uh ask us or ask a question segment so if you have a question you'd like us to answer live on air so to speak uh, in our podcast just go to speakpipe.com slash remarkable retail speakpipe dot com slash remarkable retail leave us a 90 second remarkable question and uh, and we will attempt to answer it on the uh, next podcast episode all right let's jump in to news of the week i gotta think top of the line is uh, what's going on in amazon you and i've spoken about the amazon retail stores in a number of different contexts but the sudden fairly sudden announcement it kind of took me off guard a little bit that they were closing uh, 68 stores which is their four star their bookstore and their pop-ups, right? I think that's that's the extent of right. it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I, th- I think this is surprising, but at the same time, not. In fact, we're recording this on Friday, and I just posted an article on Forbes about it. When you think about 68 stores for Amazon, it's really nothing, right? So uh, they've been at Amazon Books for, I think, about seven years, Amazon Four Star for three or four and the pop-up thing is really, really super tiny. But, um, you know, none of these formats seem to be getting any real traction. And so this idea that they would, and, and you know, we also know that Amazon just experiments with a lot of things. Yeah. So that the idea that they would stop an experiment, pivot from an experiment, or what have you, is really not surprising. But I think the broader point is, that their brick-and-mortar aspirations, you know, the things that are going to move the dial from a revenue perspective, but I think even more importantly, spin the flywheel of, of the supply mm-hmm. chain and their overall offering and the advertising business, you know, there's, there's much bigger ponds to fish in, so to speak, mm-hmm. namely grocery, fashion apparel, convenience store sector. So, uh, so I, I think it's a little bit, as I say in the article, it's a little bit much to do about nothing. The real, mm-hmm. the real prizes are those much bigger categories and what they do there. And you know they're still quite early in on that mm-hmm. strategy. But I think that's that's really where they're committed, and that's yeah. really where the action is going to be over the next few years. Yeah, I think it's a pretty astute observation. I mean, basically, I had the same. You know, so what? You know, even going back to our last episode, we talked about innovation and what what it takes for retailers to experiment they're a classic case they're very good at this kind of experimentation and what i thought the defining area of what they really leave open both uh grocery and uh, the go stores high frequency visit stores right so that's exactly. a lot of data that's a lot of data not a lot of profit nobody makes a lot of money in grocery 
but it's a lot of transactions in both those formats. So I think, as you say, that's uh, let's just say the grease that gets the the flywheel spinning for all those other things. So I think it's a pretty uh, astute. I'll put a link into the show notes so folks can read your your uh, musings uh, from uh, from that <laughs> article as well on on Forbes. Uh, what else should we talk about? Target. So Target comes out with some pretty blockbuster earnings, but more importantly, they seem to be uh, have a momentum uh, behind them that uh, perhaps took some by surprise. What did you think of the results? Well, they just keep keep on rocking. You know, they um, they had very nice profits and very solid sales increase. Uh, but that has really been the case for several years now. I think you know we talked in the I guess it's the last episode. The stores strike back again, again. I think they're kind of the poster child for this. They really saw the value of their stores and began investing very heavily in them several years ago. But they also announced that they're going to be continuing to invest in their stores further. They're going to open thirty new stores. You know, and this is a brand that's very well penetrated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're going to do two hundred remodels. They're going to add a bunch more. Ulta shops within shop there. So uh, it, it really is pretty, pretty phenomenal how well they're doing. The other thing that I thought was super interesting, particularly since it continues to both um, be at an elevated rate, but also really speaks to the importance of stores to the overall e-commerce business is that 95% of their e-commerce orders were fulfilled from stores. So wow. buy online pickup in store, curbside pickup, ship from store, delivery from store, a lot, a lot of different ways. 95. But leveraging wow. yeah, leveraging their stores for same-day delivery uh, in many cases is is an important kind of antidote, I guess, to, to Amazon in some respects. What also jumped out at me was this uh, talk about the $24 minimum wage in competitive labor markets. I mean, you know, the industry sometimes would explain away why employees at Costco have an elevated wage rate. But uh, this is putting a staple in the ground saying, we're, you know, the, the, the war for talent is real and uh, we're here to play. Yeah, I think we're going to continue to see a lot of this. I mean, even though the labor market is improving with, with COVID improving, I think we'll see some of the people that have been on the sidelines or have issues with daycare or whatever it might be, safety concerns, yeah. going huge back numbers, to work. So huge, yeah, huge numbers that just came out actually today, we're recording on Friday, like almost 700,000 new jobs in the U.S., right? Huge, huge numbers. Right. So, so you know, that that cuts both ways. But I think uh, this, this pressure... Uh, to to attract talent is going to be with us for a while, and ultimately, you know, I, I I'd like to believe. I just had a conversation with a f- friend of mine who's much more knowledgeable about this than I am. That that one of the things about becoming an employer of choice, yes, it's more expensive in one way of looking at it, but if you can have happier employees, that makes for happier customers generally, and your retention goes down. And I think a lot of companies have used this moment perhaps to, to lean into that. So some of it is just the reality of the, of the inflation um, mm-hmm. brought more broadly. But, but I, I think maybe there's something there more strategically to keep an eye on. Well, let's talk about other uh, earnings. It's a big earnings week, actually. And, of course, we're not a current events uh, podcast. But I see earnings from Nordstrom, Best Buy, and Kohl's. Any, any threads that you want to pick up from that? Yeah, I thought we'd hit this just really quickly because I don't, I don't know there, there's any – a big aha, but I think what we see in in Nordstrom, Best Buy, and Kohl's, as also Costco reported this morning, kind of a similar pattern of what you know I've started to kind of refer to as the great rebalancing or kind of this reversion to the mean. In other words, we're starting to see those categories like 
higher end apparel that were hit very hard mm. by COVID performed better. So that's, that's Nordstrom's case. Uh, but also flip side, kind of the best buy situation, a lot of those categories that performed unusually well, a lot of the big ticket purchases, you know, appliances, home electronics, office equipment, things that, that are um, high unit uh, value for, for best buy, you know, that, that's starting to settle settle down. So overall, I think the picture is starting to get back to a little bit more of a more um, common balance, I guess, between these mm-hmm. different categories. The other thing that's interesting, continues to be interesting, is all these companies really reported very weak e-commerce sales. So, you know, this idea of this massive acceleration, yeah, that happened. Uh, and, and the growth on a two-year or three-year basis is usually pretty significant. But, um, you know, Nordstrom's was down slightly. Best Buy was down 11%. Uh, I believe Kohl's was down a little bit as well. So, again, kind of getting back to more familiar patterns. We should probably mention, uh, you know, what many, many of us are uh, thinking about or, or on our thoughts today is the war in the Ukraine and uh, not a political podcast. But, of course, it has tremendous implications on the retail industry. I was reading this morning, Hermes being the la- latest retailer to uh, cease operations in Russia. That follows a long line, Ikea, a bunch of retailers. Yeah. And, the, and the impact on the supply chain is going to be uh, fairly dramatic, particularly in the food. Any any thoughts at this very early stage? I mean, I, it's just, I don't know what we can think about it, but I just thought I'd, uh, I'd bring it up because it is front of mind for all of us, both professionally sure. and, and I think personally, you know. Yeah, well, it's, it's hard to imagine a more awful situation. Um, but yeah, I think uh, the supply chain impacts certainly come at a at a challenging time for the industry more broadly. I suspect that, I mean, this is still playing out, uh, but we already know oil prices have been very high. And it looks like, uh, if anything, they're going to go up more. And of course, for a lot of a lot of consumers, particularly as people go back to work more, maybe do more travel, having to spend a lot more money on fuel if you're you know, particularly if you're mm-hmm. uh, living closer to paycheck, paycheck to paycheck, is going to have a ripple effect on spending in other places. So, hopefully, hopefully this will resolve itself peacefully, uh, quickly. Mm-hmm. But I guess at the moment, at least as we record this, it doesn't doesn't look like that's the case. Sadly, yeah, history is literally being uh, written as we speak. I'm not uh, wildly optimistic about uh, the outcomes in the near term, so we'll um, we'll probably be talking about it and uh, touch base with it again during the uh, rest of our season. All that aside, uh, let's jump into our conversation with Simeon Siegel from BMO, and let's talk about this whole DTC thing. Well, we are delighted to welcome Simeon Siegel back to the Remarkable Retail Podcast. Simeon, thanks for for joining us again, this time without the distraction of another guest. So welcome back. Guys, I'm, I'm touched. I don't know what Ethan's going to say, but this is to, to be invited back. I just, my world is complete. Well, it is a very rare privilege, but uh, we're, we're happy to have you. Uh, why don't we just start out? I mean, it's probably difficult to believe that nobody knows who you are, but just in case they don't, perhaps you can just give us a quick snapshot of your professional journey and what you currently do at BMO and, and what is BMO? Absolutely. So BMO is much more important than me. Uh, BMO is a uh, investment bank, a full service global bank. I probably should actually look what the definition of BMO is. My area within BMO focuses on analyzing the ever-changing world within retail that you two and all the listeners know so well. So we are on that side of the spectrum. Uh, I'm a managing director here, and it is a really fun seat. Well, Simeon, again, I echo uh, Steve's welcome. It's great to have you on uh, on a solo episode, have you all 
to ourselves. So you recently put out a report that is so aligned, you know, what brings us together today is a report that's so aligned to an episode we were going to do and what we've been thinking about around, uh, around DTC. And there's a lot of terms that fly around even amongst and within the industry. So we thought before we get to the discussion about the report, let's start by defining some terms. Steve and I know you have some strong opinions on this. We were just chatting off mic about it. So, you know, sometimes when we get into conversation about e-com and DTC and retail, there, there can be a bit of confusion. As you understand it or as you articulate it, particularly in this report, talk about the difference between DTC and e-commerce just so we kind of chalk the field here and make sure everybody's on the same page. Uh, absolutely. And I love that because oftentimes I start a conversation realizing I'm uh, having a different conversation than I thought I was. So DTC simply stands for direct to consumer. Direct to consumer means just that. Whether it's your own store, whether it's e-com, it's not using a third party. It's not using wholesale. The flip side is wholesale. And so at the end of the day, we'll have a lot of conversations around e-com versus stores. This specific focus was to look at when an entity sells directly to a consumer in whatever medium they choose versus if they embrace a third party to help them do that. Funny, I, I got into a conversation with someone and it was a client and at the end of it, they said, well, I want to go DTC and go direct. I'm going to go through Amazon. I'm like, wait. <laughs> so there's, there's even confusion that Amazon is, is a retailer, which is, not un, totally under, which is not totally surprising given the multiple ways you do business with them, right? That there's... You know, basically an FBA relationship, like a fulfillment relationship is is still doing business with Amazon, but it's different, right? I think the beauty is we're just all stuck on this idea. If there's a middle person involved, it must be bad. There's no single company in the world that's vertically integrated. Like that just it just does not exist. And even if that means you're doing everything from soup to nuts, but someone else is running your advertising, people use other people for other things. And I think that's an important thing we need to keep in mind. Yeah, I also uh, wanted to bring up that sometimes I feel like on Twitter, particularly among some of the younger folks, not to be ageist about it, there's almost like this idea that somehow DTC is this is this new thing, and uh, I, I'm just very amused by that. In fact, I've started to you know just like we talk about digitally native vertical brands, I feel like I want to get us to talk about analog native vertical brands because <laughs> we've got you know Lands End, LL Bean, J Crew. Sir Latab, most of Williams Sonoma have uh, Williams Sonoma. I guess you could argue a little bit because they um, they carry some brands that aren't their own. But this this idea of a mono brand that goes direct to consumer originally mail order catalog. But you know, many of these companies followed the same strategy that Allbirds and Warby Parker did. Of they built their business through mail order catalog, then they started to open their, their own stores. So. That's a, that's another thing. I think we just got to be clear that this DTC phenomenon is hardly hardly something new. Well, and I love when you bring those up. You get my high five emojis on the uh, the Twitterverse there as well. But at the end of the day, it's so important because what retail is, what anything is, there are creators of content, whether it's physical, right, whether it's a sweater, or whether it's IP, whether it's a poem. And then there's a distributor of that content that helps it get to the user of that content. That It's as simple as that. That has existed since time immemorial. And at the end of the day, this notion that it's a brand new revolutionary, no, someone's creating something and someone's using it. And the question is, how do we bridge that gap in between? And I, so I, I love every time you comment on that because it's just so true. You know, I want to move on to talk about your report and some of the key findings in a second. But I think the other, the other lesson maybe is that kind of everything old 
is new again, right? Like a lot of these companies, like like the Allbirds, the Warby Parkers, et cetera, act like they just discovered something new that, oh, well, when we open a store, actually our you know, e-commerce business goes up. But that's been actually something that's been pretty well known, I think, in the industry for probably 40 years. So I just encourage people, I guess, to do a little bit of research about some things that that perhaps are true. But anyway, let's let's dig into your report. So the report you released is called DTC's Not All It's Cracked Up to Be, I think is is the name. And um, a lot of great information in there and um, probably give some contact information so people can get that report if they want. But can you give us just kind of the highlights and and maybe in particular some of the more interesting and or controversial findings? Absolutely. And let's let's set the record straight just to start. I don't aim to be controversial. It might, it might seem otherwise. Um, the, the best reports are the ones that our hypotheses have nothing to do with the conclusion whatsoever. And that is this. This, this report was a two-week report turned into six-month report. And the Cliff Notes versions are, we found that despite rhetoric to the contrary, as big brands pivoted to direct, no big brand or the big brands doing that did not see an increase in four things. They did not see an increase in revenues. They did not see an increase in gross margin rate. They did not see an increase in EBIT rate. And they did not see an increase in EBIT dollars, right? Profit dollars. And all four of those things I said quickly, they're all very important and very confusing. And they are not the conclusions we would have thought walking in. And so that's what was so fascinating about this. And every time we stumbled on another one of these data-driven conclusions, we had to pull the string a little bit more and bang our head against the wall. And so we can dig into all of those, but I just think this notion, ultimately where it came down to, was it's this belief that by going direct, you elevate your brand, you have better consumer data, you're more close. Like All of those things I agree qualitatively. Hmm. The problem was, and you guys know me well, I, I can be very opinionated, which means I can be very wrong. This report was actually very low on opinions and very high on empirical data. And that's, I think, the powerful part. If the qualitative data doesn't translate to higher revenues and or profits, hmm. we should ask, what is that value? You know, right? what, what, what struck me that was interesting was in all this narrative, and, and, and Steve, you and I talked about this before, that there's a kernel of truth in, it, in all of it. You know, it is now more important than ever before to get first-party data than third-party data and all given what's going on. And it's also true that the exceptions are sometimes seen as proof of the rule. So in your report, and we would know brands like a Canada Goose or a Nike, right, become the big story of brands going direct and becoming successful. But they may be the exception that doesn't prove the rule, right? Yeah. So the interesting part of this was, so listen, I, lo- I generally look at public companies, so large public companies, because that's where the data is very real and available. So this incorporates all of those. And so that's what we found. We ran a scatter plot across a companies everyone would recognize here, very big companies. The same way that I am saying don't run away from wholesale, I'm also not saying throw away direct. The Mm. beauty here, and I know you two agree with this, the beauty is you have to figure out your right mix. So I'm not saying Nike shouldn't go direct, but I think this notion that we all have turned wholesale into an evil word, it's just not true. And I think what's important is if we think about who are the largest brands or who are the brands that are running away or, or are telling us, right, changing the narrative to direct in favor of wholesale, somewhat by definition, they're the largest brands that actually became big and became healthy by being the best embracers of it in the first place. So one of the questions I have, I mean, uh, it seems to me, and I, and I realize this is perhaps a little bit hard to tell directly from your data, but it seems to me in the case of a brand like Nike, a very well-established brand and a brand that has a tremendous amount of reach 
and scale already. The idea of pulling back on wholesale distribution to, number one, have that direct relationship with the customer, uh, but be able to control your destiny more, seems to be very strategically sound. On the other hand, if you are a relatively new brand um, and you're seeking to build awareness, you know one of the fundamental flaws, I think, in the premise of the original digitally native vertical brand hypothesis was that it was going to be pretty easy and cheap to build a brand online without having stores and without having wholesale distribution. I think that wasn't even really on the radar screen originally. And as it turned out, it over time became very expensive to grow a brand online only. And then you have all the other issues of returns and things like that. But but it seems like that's that's a really big difference in terms of the starting point of a brand. And you know now it seems like particularly these newer brands are really emphasizing their own stores and potentially wholesale as a way to get um, more awareness more cheaply. So they're trading off the the kind of full margin that they thought was going to pay for a lot of things against the shorter margin, but a lot more awareness and savings of other operating costs. Does that make sense to you, or can you tell from your data? Oh, boy. Can we um, schedule the third follow-up already? I mean, I that, that is an action fact. <laughs> yeah. I love so much of what you just said. It's going to take me. <laughs> um, so, listen, I think the second half, I could not agree with more. I think you see brands like Viore, that are doing obviously gaining such tremendous uh, response. This is a company that understands the value of wholesale, right? They obviously are. They, everyone would think of them as a digitally native, but they fully understand the value of having strong partnerships where it makes sense. So there are very much, I think, like you run the risk if you're small of not seeing that. Like we're watching a success story emerge because of the full holistic view. So, so I totally agree with you there. What I will say on the Nike side, and I, I have a, a buy recommend it on a buy recommendation on Nike, which is which is kind of my my terminology how we approach this. So I very much like Nike, and I think that their scale allows them to do things that others simply can't catch up to. But I will say Nike's margin until very recently on a rate basis has not gone up despite a continuing drive towards direct. I, I do wonder. That, so so basically, if we if we go back to those four quick things that I brought up. I wouldn't have assumed those conclusions would have played, but ex post facto, trying to hypothesize why. Well, why would revenues not go up better with direct? Well, maybe you're getting a higher dollar per unit, but you're giving up a certain scale at wholesale. You're giving up the unit, the amount of units, and that ends up overwhelming that. As we continue to see, I mean, you, you and I, have to, we, we've, we've all talked about this idea of the shrink to grow and COVID allowed companies to sell less and charge more. So I'm a huge proponent of elevating your brand. But I think we have to understand that when you elevate your brand, there is you do run the risk of giving up those units. And I think those units have become very important. So I think even at the largest side, and this is where it ends up driving more of the controversy, the large brands that have been pivoting to direct over the last 10 years have not seen, like the, those conclusions apply to all of those big brands. And that's what's really interesting. And to get to a, we'll, we'll talk about a kind of the exception. The exception that we find is luxury brands. Brands that have incredibly high margins mathematically already end up countering this, but but we'll get there. Simeon, when you when you look at the number of digitally native vertical brand types that are doing IPOs and talking about that they're embracing stores, it makes me think that something has changed in the external environment, perhaps that factors or doesn't factor into the thinking. So a number of years ago, it made a lot more sense for brands to go direct in one way because the platforms were there. 
social media platforms, the Facebooks and all these, and you could do it at a very cost-effective manner and get some advantage by being very good at it. In other words, you could develop expertise that would give you an advantage. It feels to me, whether it's the cost, the platform, they become more like a, you know, a utility more than an advantage, that that's gone away. And that therefore has led to this embrace of stores. And this together makes it just much more difficult to to parse off that wholesale versus direct profit or, you know, that profit exchange. You know, it's a lot of the digitally natives are a lot of fun, right? They're, they're new. They give us new products. They're fun to talk about at the end of the day. And I haven't done this math. I feel like you guys probably have. If we were to group together all the digitally natives, whether they succeeded or not in terms of revenues, would they equal Ralph Lauren? Like I just, it, it's this really fascinating mm-hmm. thing. And, and I was having a conversation with a, a very good mutual friend of our, of, of ours about CMOs and just complaining about iOS and different conversations around Apple. And I'm thinking, you know, who never complains about the change in privacy, the large brands, right? The brands right. that supposedly have no first party data seem to have no problem selling a lot of units to their consumers. So I, I think you're absolutely right. I think there was this ability to bypass the normal way we think about customer acquisition costs, which has never been a word brought up in retail, right? CAC was not a thing for the mm-hmm. gap. Lifetime mm-hmm. value is not a thing. We just talk about comps. Customers continue to grow if you give them product. So it's this really interesting dynamic where, yeah, I think, I think the opportunity was right for this ability to skip finding a customer. But at the end of the day, I wonder how much of that was more the microphone and the storytelling rather than the actual revenue implication. I, I think retail's... The, the quiet joke is the dead retail, even before we've all finally awoken to the fact that retail did not die, thanks to Steve's many tweets to the to this point. It's all that, me, all those tweets, man. It's so powerful. <laughs> <laughs> They've been drumming along the whole time, right? Retail's been doing great, even as people have been talking about it dying. So Victoria's Secret in, in its worst in, in its death throes was still a five billion dollar business. That's where I think the funny part is. Yeah, I think I often bring up with with companies that that most of the and this is not to say they can't become much bigger brands and but I think you mentioned this in in your report or maybe I heard you speak about it with someone else but there's really very few uh, of these brands that are larger forget even the profit for now but that are larger than a hundred million dollars which which is the size of one pretty good Neiman Marcus store right it's not you know it's just a fairly niche brand right so they 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 haven't gotten to to much size and i think some of that is that they're very focused on a very particular set of 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 customers and they were able to find the best customers like the perfect fit customers very early on but what's really transpired over the last several years is they're having to go find customers and to do that they have to promote pricing much more aggressively they have to spend more money on acquisition, which is hurting the profitability, as we talked about, or they have to try stores because they do their research. I know several of these brands, they did their research and said, well, people are interested in our product, but they want to go see it and try it on. So I think a lot of these dynamics were were pretty obvious um, for a while. It's just now I think we're really, particularly some of these co- companies go public, we're getting to see a kind of a peek under the hood. I did want to talk to you about a, a broader issue of uh, one of the things I said in my book, which I probably could have said better, I had a little section called the increasingly useless middleman. And I probably should have put a question mark on that. But the, but the point I was trying to make was that a lot of the traditional multi-line retailers, particularly in the department store space, but you can certainly look 
look more broadly, continue to struggle, even if some of their numbers kind of have this dead cat bounce. And so my sense was, well, if you are a manufacturer that is used to getting a lot of your volume through these multi-line retailers, you know, that's likely to be a shrinking channel for you. And you're going to have to find, you know, those retailers are going to have to find new ways to compete and grab market share and, and the manufacturers might have to change their strategy. But one of the things I think we're, so one, I want to just sort of your general comment on how to think about it in the context of this DTC wholesale debate. But it also seems like Target, Nordstrom, others are really starting to look at some of these smaller brands as a point of differentiation, right? You know, that that's part of the strategy, both for the retailer to take on these brands, as well as for these newer brands to change their distribution strategy. So any general comments about kind of the world of wholesale and how it's shifting and how brand strategies might, might need to pivot? Yeah. So I think you have been obviously so on point in this category. I think that the interesting dynamic we need to keep in mind is there's two sides of that question. There's what do we think about department stores and what should brands think about department stores? I want to take the latter first because I think this is really important. How many, how many, what, what number of billions of dollars over 10 did Sears have before going out? Like at the end of the day, these are very important revenue channels, but more importantly than that, if they're not healthy, one of the reasons people knock department stores are because they have a very low gross margin. A very low gross margin simply means they're not that expensive to the brands selling into them. That's, it's just it's a very important point that I think that goes unnoticed. If you believe the presentation is good, it's actually a very cheap sales force. That's what a low gross margin mm. means. It means their cogs, their costs are very high. So they're paying their vendors a lot. So I think that that's really important. So I think that that's why you're seeing some of these new up and coming exciting brands embrace a Nordstrom. Because Nordstrom is a great presentation and it's not an expensive sales force. Whereas if you go roll out your own store fleet or you enter the ongoingly variable, never-ending cost in e-com, you have to do it yourself. So yeah, I, I totally agree with you. So I think the second half of that conversation is to say, without assessing the validity or without deciding on how exciting the story for department stores will be, they're, not a, they're, they're a good way for brands to sell without paying a lot. The first it's, half is the tougher conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things that uh, also struck me about the report is, is I thought of my own experience qualitatively talking to brands who are wholesale brands and decided that they were suddenly going to go direct to consumer in, in a meaningful way. And I found the cultures so different, not just even withstanding the, the capabilities in the organization. I think a lot of folks underestimate the cultural and organizational difference of being a wholesaler brand versus a direct-to-consumer brand. And, you know, everything from taking returns, as Steve said, to loss prevention. They're like, what is this loss prevention you speak of? Have you run into some of those conversations where people go, oh, yeah, this is actually harder than I, or we're just, it's just not us. We're just not good at this yet. What? Is there a shiny new object over here I can try out? I I think the irony of this, and we weren't friends back then, but about 10 years ago, my team did a very similar report about e-commerce versus stores. So Mm. it was the same idea. And and the beauty of this is that the, the most fun reports start with people saying, oh, it's obvious, right? It was mm-hmm. obvious that e-com was going to be margin accretive, more profitable. Why? Because there's no rent and there's no, no labor. It's obvious. Well, it turns out it was obviously not true, right? We, we had variable <laughs> expense. We had another way of looking at the business. So yeah. it's the same thing. And so we did this report then, and, and it was the same conversation. It was listening to very traditional stores 
embrace this beautiful new thing that wasn't going to have rent. And you're like, well, there's going to be a lot more other costs. Your, your pick, pack, ship, fulfill, return, reverse logistics, et cetera. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. all of a sudden everyone embraced that. And I feel like that's where we are right now. Mm. So it's this notion of, well, of course I want to go to direct. It's obvious. Why is it obvious? Because if I make a pair of shoes or a sweater and I sell it on my own channel versus giving it to a department store, I get the full markup and the cog doesn't change. So it's obviously going to be better for me. Then I and, and I throw in the fact that I get first party data. It's obvious. Well, I just think it's the same notion. Nothing's ever obvious. <laughs> that, that's that's my rule, right? Anytime someone says it's obvious is a is a time to dig in. And I think that's where we are. <laughs> so I was going to ask you. And it's probably a bit of an unfair question, but you know, it's our podcast. You agree to come on, so you know, you assume the risk. <laughs> but I, when I was reading your report, one of the things I was wondering about. Or two two things I was wondering about, I guess. One was, well, some of, you know, we have very limited data, public data about uh, these digitally native vertical brands. Arguably, brands like Nike are still a bit early in their strategy. So to, to see the margin impact, you know, perhaps we're not quite there yet. But then the second thing is when you layer on top the, dyna- the dynamics that went on in covid which, you know, in some cases caused more liquidation. In other cases, it caused great margin because there was a shortage of supply. You know, can can we really tell how this is likely to play out? Can we really take some of your conclusions or hypotheses and, and run with them? So, one, what, did, how, do you, how do you think about that? And I guess more importantly, what should we, assuming we're starting to really get get beyond COVID in a significant way, what, what should people be fo- most focused on and, and most digging into to understand where this is all headed and what they might want to do about it. Steve, come on. That was way too polite. Throw, throw the real question out there. <laughs> so, so no, no, listen, I, I think, I think it's a, it's a, what, what should be said, I should have said this before, cause it's a great point. So this report actually stops in 2019. Like we, we'll reference 2020, but we, all the numbers stopped in 2019 because the 2020 numbers effectively were useless relative to this analysis. I, I totally agree with that. So I think that that's one point that is worth flagging. So, so any of the conclusions here, Stop there. In terms of the go forward, and and what I want to be really clear about, this is not a normative decision to say, by the way, Nike, stop going direct. This is a flag to explain, I do not believe you're going to get margin from it. So the interesting dynamic here is just because it's not good or it's not going to get what it, what you think it should be doesn't mean you shouldn't do it because if you believe you're tapped out at wholesale, if you believe that your brands are no longer representing you in the right way, of course you should call them. But you let's be clear about what that's doing. Is that offensive or defensive? And I'm not talking about Nike mm-hmm. specifically, just in general. So like I actually increasingly wonder as we're thinking about people listening and what, what I would want them to take away from this. The idea here is to be holistic. The idea here is to understand why you do what you do. And sometimes decisions are offensive. Hopefully they are. Sometimes they're defensive if they need to be. And so at the end of the day, I think that's a very important perspective. There are some brands, the brands, I wonder if brands signaling the the pivot away from wholesale are more likely signaling that they are tapped out in wholesale than they are about how excited they are about direct. They can't mm. say that, mm. right? We have to be optimistically delusional in our field. Like that's a very important <laughs> characteristic. But I think that I, I wonder about that. So, so that's kind of something that I want to throw in there in terms of where we go. In terms of your last or your first point, 
listen, the future can hold what it'll hold, but I think it's important to stress that we have been growing direct for a long, like to your point, we have been pushing from wholesale to direct for, for a while. So are there new technological advancements that will drastically improve the cost of e-com and maybe that changes the conversation? Perhaps. Are there other ways that'll change the dynamic between store labor? Can you share more partnerships? Do All of a sudden Nordstrom is talking about GMV rather than talking about revenues. So I, I think where technology takes the future may well have an impact on this, but everything we have seen thus far would not suggest it has happened yet. Well, our guest is uh, Simeon Siegel, and uh, the report is uh, available from uh, BMO. DTC is not all it's cracked up to be. Great conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a a topic that Steve and I, and uh, clearly you share an interest and passion on, and and it's a great way to uh, wrap the conversation, this holistic treatment of uh, doesn't need to be one or the other. Sometimes it can be both. So, Simeon, thanks again so much for joining us on the Remarkable Retail Podcast, and I wish you a great rest of your week and look forward to seeing you soon. I think it's Shop Talk, so we're uh, we're all pretty excited about that. Amen to that. And it's exciting. I now get to say, always great to be here. <laughs> it's fun to be back. <laughs> if you like what you heard, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform so you can catch up with all our great interviews and insights and new episodes will show up each and every week. Sure to check out our YouTube channel. And last but not least, tell your friends and colleagues in the retail industry all about us. And I'm Steve Dennis, author of the best-selling book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption. You can learn more about me, my consulting, and keynote speaking at stephenpdennis.com. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, producer and co-host of the Conversations of Commerce Next podcast, the voice of retail podcast, keynote speaker, and host of the all-new Last Request Barbecue Cooking Show on YouTube. And you can learn even more about me on LinkedIn or emmyleblanc.co. Have a safe week, everyone. Everyone.